Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 36, Gross Action. As German forces, three million strong, poured into Soviet territory on June 22, 1941, the most surprised person was Joseph Stalin. The British, and therefore the Americans, had an inkling of what was coming as word got back to London since the British were more and more funding the Polish and Jewish underground networks. But Stalin, who had undermined, lied, and outright betrayed so many to get where he was today, just watch any bio, or better yet, watch the movie Stalin, starring Robert Duvall, 1992. You will literally be afraid when he's on screen. Could not believe that anyone could or would double-cross him. On a side note, the Allies would not find out about the secret clause that divided up Poland of the Ribbentrop-Molotov non-aggression pact until after the war. As can be imagined, the Zionist underground run by Zuckerman and Lubetkin were amazed by this turn of events, but also hopeful. Surely, the massive Russian population would be able to field a force large enough to destroy the Nazi invaders. But within days of the invasion, the Barkers, attached to the Poles throughout the capital, announced victory after victory for the Germans. And even if the jubilant voices had been lying, the proof was there were no German armies being driven back, no victorious Red armies coming forward. As for Isaac Zuckerman, his muted elation had turned to fear when he heard the announcement that only after two days into the invasion, his hometown of Vilna had been taken. He could only think of his quick goodbye he had said to his parents, as he was so eager to get on with his work in defying the Nazis. But it was too late to return home now, so he quickly wrote letters and had a courier sent out. But the young man, clutching the letters, asking after Zuckerman's family, did not come back until the end of summer bringing back with him the unopened letters and disturbing news. The Zuckermans were safe, but he didn't dare approach them. The boy, he was only a teenager, tried to take the correspondence to one of the Zionist cells outside the center of town. But when he looked for fellow members in the surrounding suburbs of Troki or Pornar or Landwaroa to give the letters to, he found no one. But it was worse. Not only were there no Zionists to hand them off to, there were no Jews, period, in these suburbs of Vilna. They had all, by then, been taken to a nearby forest and shot. Word of this massacre had spread throughout the walled-off Jewish corner, and along with it, panic. Many did not believe this tale, could not believe this tale. What if the boy was wrong? What if some of the Jews had welcomed the Red Soldiers when they first took over, and the Nazis were only exacting revenge? Clearly, more information was needed. So Zvia, remaining calmer than most, sent her most trusted courier, Funka Plotnik, the beautiful blonde Jew that seemed to be able to go anywhere she wanted. If she came back with the same story, then the Jewish elders would believe. The Bundes had heard the same rumors, but never asked the Zionists, their ideological rivals, to share their information. It never entered into any of their heads to do so. They would also confirm the information for themselves. 
Normally, Mark Edelman would have been perfect for this kind of assignment. As he had worked at the Jewish hospital, he had a pass to leave the quarter. Also, since his job was to transport blood samples of suspected typhus victims, no one, criminals, thugs, police, even the SS, went near him. But that job had recently been taken away from him. Now he was confined to the hospital. His job now was sewing up corpses after undergoing autopsies. Besides, a new Ditka had been announced by the Germans on October 10, 1941, that said any Jew caught outside of the ghetto would be immediately shot. Furthermore, any Gentile aiding the Jews in any way would receive the same treatment. But desperate times call for desperate measures. So Edelman's superior, Bernard Goldstein, the old street fighter, contacted a colleague from his pre-war days, a man named Rung, who now worked with the Polish underground. As a Gentile, he was more or less allowed to travel. Rung knew the risks, but agreed to make the journey and confirm the ghastly news for the Bundists. Because really, anything of this magnitude would eventually affect the Gentiles of Poland as well. Being able to travel openly, Rung returned in just a few weeks. The stories were true. All of them. The Germans, once they had taken control, set up an organization staffed by Lithuanians called the Elect. The Germans claimed they had found documents that proved Jewish Bolsheviks had caused the suffering of relatives of these selected Lithuanians and then gave them guns and stepped back which allowed the wrongly enraged civilians to step up, now side by side with the Germans, as they moved against the Jewish population. The elect helped kill a third of Vilna's 60,000 Jews. This ghastly scene was repeated over and over along the Russian-Polish border. Lies were spread, guns handed over, violence was encouraged. It soon got out of hand as it was meant to. But before lawlessness was allowed to dominate the region, another 7,000 Jews from Lvov, 1,100 Jews from Lutsk, and 600 Jews from Ternopil were murdered. Everywhere that could be, per Himmler's orders, death squads were organized and armed. They only had one function. Because the Germans had been more brutal with the Poles, fewer of that nationality initially helped the Germans, but enough were found to bring about the death of thousands of Polish Jews. Now that the organized violence was confirmed, the Bundists sprung into action and organized a 500-man strong militia, which meant little because there was no arms or training. In the coming months and years, many outside organizations would promise both, but deliver little, if at all. And not that there would ever be a good time for this, but just as the Bundists were realizing the true danger and responding, they and almost all of the others of the ghetto were hit with two crippling blows. First, many of the Polish Blue Police were replaced with Ukrainian and Lithuanian nationals, whose hatred for the Jews, partly caused by German lies, created a firestorm of violence against the helpless quarter's residents. These newcomers did not want to be bribed. They were not interested in payouts. They just wanted revenge. Subsequently, the life-sustaining trade 
that bribes allowed with the outside world fell sharply. Also, in November of 1941, the power was cut to the walled-up Jews. That is, except for the most southern part of the ghetto, mostly along Siena Street. There, the locals had funds available for bribes that not only kept the lights on, but allowed those select few, along with some Poles who cooperated with or worked alongside Germans, to gather over feasts and consume vast amounts of alcohol far into the night, during more nights than not. Lights could be seen, the sound of merrymaking emanated from the lavish houses. As for the rest, those that had earned enough to live off of through factory work, now were staring at an empty tomorrow. By December of 1941, just over 43,000 Jews had died from hunger and disease. The survivors had no choice but to lay the bodies out, naked, on the sidewalk. In the next few days, members of the sanitation crew would come by, pick up the body in a wheelbarrow, and bury it in a mass grave along the wall of the ghetto's western side. Teenager Simha Rothhauser's life was about to change, but for the better. By the end of 1941, his mother Miriam, she had taken over as head of the family, decided her son had to go. If he could escape through the walls to bring back food, he could get out again, but this time would be told not to come back. The family had relatives near Radom, which was small enough to be mostly ignored by the Germans. He would spend the rest of the war there, safe and away from all this. Simha only agreed to this because he saw a chance to be his own man, to live by his own rules and not his family's. Some things never change. December of 1941 also brought hope, but then dismay, to the people of the ghetto. When Japan attacked U.S. naval forces at Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. declared war on Japan, and then Germany, the desperate Jews celebrated the coming fall of the Nazi regime. For how could even Germany stand up to the industrial might and populous country across the Atlantic? Only time would give an answer to that. But soon enough, after the mutual declarations of war, the few relief packages that reached the ghetto via Switzerland disappeared. No power, less food, and no independent work. That was the life of those inside the ghetto at the beginning of 1942. Keeping to herself, the news of the U.S. entry into the war made Zavia think of a statement Hitler made after the start of the war in Europe. At the time, it didn't seem to be much. But now, Hitler promised the world that if international Jewry in Europe and outside Europe once again pushes nations to world war, the result will be the extermination of the Jewish race in Europe. And this threat seemed to be coming true. On the very day that aircraft from Japan attacked the U.S. Navy at Pearl Harbor, the Nazis opened up a new camp about 40 miles northwest of Lodz. Its sole purpose was to rid Europe of Jews. The center of the camp was an abandoned castle near Kemmel, and Jews from surrounding towns were gathered up and brought there. Though promised a shower and new clothes to begin a work program, the victims were tricked into undressing and then loaded into the back of huge trucks. The exhaust from the trucks were then redirected back to the naked captives. 
By the time the convoy drove deep into the woods, where massive holes had already been dug, the vast majority of the travelers were dead, or either too weak to resist being pushed into a large hole and covered up. Amazingly, one of those tasked to dig a hole survived the post-burial mass execution. He made his way to Warsaw, not knowing where else to go, and told his story. Again, the elders did not believe. How could there be a program to kill every Jew? Impossible. There were over three million in Poland alone. Impossible. But again, Zvia remained calm and sent out her verifier, the beautiful Frumka. When she returned, the look on her face confirmed the gravedigger's story. For Isaac and Zvia and other young members of the underground, there was only one thing to do. Fight back. Find weapons. Find someone to train and lead them. And fight back. Death was coming their way. The only question was, how were they going to face it? But the more the younger members defied their elders and sought ways to fight back, the more it seemed not meant to be. Promises were made, but then fell through. Representatives came into the ghetto, talked up their mutual desires of defying the Nazis, but never delivered. The one time a few guns and grenades made it into the walled quarter, they were seized by Germans on a random patrol. Nothing seemed to be going the would-be fighter's way. Still, Isaac and Sevilla would not give up. The two lovers joined their organization to others, hoping to bring in new blood. But soon after, some of those leaders were arrested and then shot. Clearly, someone was talking to the Germans, but it could not be helped. The two Zionists kept striving to find someone who could get them weapons and train them. They had the manpower, as more and more youths turned away from the older leaders, desiring to do something against the seemingly inevitable. But then came the Germans' next move, and this blow struck at the very heart of the underground, sapping the one strength they had, their people. Almost to the day of the German invasion of the USSR, an announcement went out on June 22, 1942, that read, All Jewish persons living in Warsaw, regardless of age and sex, will be resettled to the east. Evacuees were told to prepare three days' worth of food, to bring no more than 30 pounds of luggage, but most importantly, to bring all their valuables. Their destination was not given. The Germans further explained that those to be moved were to be put to work and fed. To prove this for those that volunteered, they were to be given six pounds of bread and two pounds of jam. The amazed Jews had not seen that much food in weeks, the result being many lined up, including some of the rougher elements within the quarter. This promise also helped spread the rumor that surely, if the Germans were going to feed us, then they didn't intend to kill us. And so began a seven-week period that would become known as the Gross Action. Seven weeks of Jews, some volunteering at first, eventually none at all, being packed into trains that made their way out of town, only to return hungry for more bodies. And as fewer volunteered for this resettlement, the SS would enter the ghetto and methodically clear buildings and then streets 
than entire blocks, and see to it that the trains were packed each time they departed, several times a day for each train. In fact, the victims were so pushed together when being loaded up that some died of asphyxiation before the train ever moved. Not that it mattered. Those that lived to see their destination were never heard from again. Mark Edelman, who worked for the hospital, was given a white coat and told to inspect the soon-to-be-departing for diseases, supposedly because only those healthy enough to work would be allowed to go. Edelman, of course, was not medically trained and didn't know what to look for. This did not seem to concern the Germans much. Edelman quickly figured out that he was just a prop in the great Nazi lie. However, calling the Germans bluff, when a Bundist comrade was brought before him, Edelman made a great show of inspecting the man, and then nonchalantly declaring him unfit for work. These few fortunate ones were taken back to the ghetto. The Germans could not publicly defy this proclamation. Edelman also noticed that the same trains would return before too long. Obviously, the new workers weren't being taken too far away. Word of this got around, and as the Bundists and Zionists were still not talking to each other, each group sent someone to follow the tracks of the departing trains. Although each spy failed to follow the tracks to their end, they independently discovered that a new camp was set up about 50 miles northeast of Warsaw. The trains made for there and returned. No one ever came back. What's more, there was never any food on board, not even crumbs. This relatively new camp was called Treblinka 1, and although unknown at the time, it was where thousands of Gentiles had already taken the one-way trip. Eventually, the Bundists, after hearing more rumors, sent out their spy again, who returned in August of 1942 and reported on scene Treblinka 2. Again, trains arrived there regularly, the emaciated people were loaded off, and soon disappeared completely. So now, not only were there SS coming into the ghetto to grab enough people to load up their trains, soon Ukrainian, Latvian, and Lithuanian guards entered the quarter and equally emptied out buildings and streets and blocks of the ghetto. Before the Jews' very eyes, major sections of their walled-off quarter was becoming a ghost town. Throughout the year of 1942, Isaac and Zevia met only with frustration and disappointment. None of the elders would help them, still, after all they had uncovered. So, they decided to help themselves. On July 28th of that year, they founded the Jewish Fighting Organization, which would be better known as the ZOB. And because they had only obtained one pistol, they decided to launch their group, not with a mass revolt, but instead with an assassination. The man to die was Joseph Zerzinski, who had been a powerful police officer before the war, but was now only too happy to do the Nazis' bidding. However, the attempt was botched on August 20th. It turns out that killing a man was harder than the Nazis made it look. Still, an attempt on a Nazi collaborator's life was made. That got the attention of the authorities. People were questioned, beaten, and then questioned again. They were eventually shot as others were brought in to start the cycle all over again. 
Not unsurprisingly, these methods produced results. On September 3rd, just two weeks after the shooting, the two other leaders of the ZOB, Joseph Kaplan and Samuel Breslau of the Young Guard, were gunned down. Isaac and Zavia were back to square one. The supposed resettlement of Jewish workers, or Gros Action, ended after its seventh week. The last train headed out in September 1942. Ironically, this last load of doomed Jews were the 2,000 policemen the Germans had been using to keep the inmates of the walled city in check, but they were hardly needed now. The population of the Jewish ghetto of Warsaw had just been reduced by some 300,000. The remaining people, less than 50,000, would be that much easier to control. Because those that had not been deported worked for one of the German-owned factories that produced items needed by the Wehrmacht when not tolling away, they were kept under tight guard in one of four large apartment buildings, which now had barbed wire surrounding it. Truly, their lives consisted of work, walking to and from work, and being locked down in a complex. So when the dimensions of the population change were noticed, really noticed, the survivors could not comprehend what they saw, or rather, what they were not seeing. During those seven weeks, everyone had been obsessed with working hard so as to not be dragged away to the trains. Their natural state by now was to ever be looking down. But now that the trains were not coming, as large groups were not daily being taken away, the people left behind looked up, and what they saw were the once crowded streets of the Jewish quarter, now completely empty, except for the dead, with their skin stretched so tight as to make their bones observable. Yet despite this, despite there now only being some forty-five to 50,000 people left in the ghetto, Isaac and Zavia were still determined to resist, to fight back. But how? They still had no weapons, and their elders still refused to give their support. The younger Bundists were experiencing the same stalemate. The Zionists just didn't know it. But someone had to resist. Someone had to try and protect the remaining 498 children under the age of 10. As for the other 49,050 children, it was too late. They had already made their one-way trip to Treblinka. Yet now, some would say naturally, despair hung in the air. Now thoughts and voices turned to using the one weapon the remaining Jews had. Hundreds, if not thousands, of drums of hidden gasoline. Why not set the ghetto on fire and attack the Germans as they came to investigate? Many Jews would die, of course, having no guns. But they considered themselves dead already. They had nothing to lose. This kind of talk went on for hours, but in the end, cooler heads prevailed. Someone reasoned, if they were all willing to die for each other, then it was better to fight and at least have a chance to survive. The rebuilding of the ZOB started that night. But first, they needed weapons, communication with the outside world, but most importantly, they needed a leader. Isaac was good. He had many of the qualities a leader would need, but now they all sensed they needed 
someone else, someone obsessed, who cared only about killing Germans and liberating them, someone who these determined warriors would gladly die for. And, as if Providence heard their request, one Mordecai and Ialowitz entered the ghetto not 48 hours later. Mordecai and Ialowitz, or Mordek, little thugface, as he was called when a teenager, had wanted to resist the Germans at the beginning of the war. He had claimed then that the Germans would destroy them all, and the only thing left to do was fight back. But the elders dismissed him in those early days. Yes, the Nazis were going to be rough with them, steal everything they had, beat them. But mass killings? Impossible. But the angry young man would not shut up. So, he was sent packing. Yet now that Mordek's prediction had come more than true, the elders were being shoved to the side by the likes of Zuckerman, Lubetkin for the Zionists, and Mark Edelman for the Bundists. Even Edelman's one-time hero, Bernard Goldstein, was now out of the picture. Simply, the younger members, angry, afraid, and now ashamed at having survived the Grosse Action, wanted revenge. They wanted to make up for their seven weeks of cowardice. Then another miracle came to the Zionists. The Bundists wanted to talk. Like the Zionists, now that the old guard was respectfully but firmly moved out of the way, the younger members didn't focus on ideology or past slights. They all wanted the same thing, and nothing could be allowed to get in the way. And on October 15, 1942, the Bund joined the Jewish Fighting Organization, or ZOB. Its new leadership was made up of all young hotheads. Zuckerman, Lubetkin, Mordek, Mark Edelman, once Goldstein's errand boy, and Baruch Spiegel, who had lost his family and thirsted for revenge. And as word got out about this new pan-ideological organization, other groups joined as well, from the political left, right, and center, and the communists as well. Now that they had a leadership council, they needed to pick a leader. Zuckerman desperately wanted the job, but had to admit, if only to himself, that he simply did not have the single-minded determination of Mordek. Nothing else existed for this young man. It was as if he willed their freedom to become reality, and that intensity could be seen by all that came into contact with him. Progress was being made, but the work never stopped. Even before bullets came food. Warriors had to be fit and strong. They had to be plumped out a bit to even begin their work of fighting the Nazis which caused Zuckerman to remember a large estate he came across when he first came back to Warsaw, its large fields, its self-imposed isolation. With nothing to lose, Zuckerman snuck out of the ghetto and approached its owner, a man named Zatwarniki. But Isaac didn't need the sales pitch he had been practicing as he walked past the estate's orchards, its lake, its dozens of buildings. Zatwarniki was open to the idea and let the Z.O.B. have the run of the place. The nascent rebellion planned on planting crops when they could and used the many buildings to hide Jews being searched for by the authorities. And it was here at the Zarwiki estate where Simha Rothauser returned when, feeling guilty about his life of relative ease for the last seven months, decided without knowing about the Gross Action to help the struggle.
The attempted assassination of police officer Zernitsky had an unattended effect on others that worked for or passed along information to the Gestapo. Just as the rain stops when the clouds are blown away, so too did many of those not willing to betray this new power within the ghetto. The ZOB had therefore become that much safer, although they didn't realize it at first. Then came the last piece of the puzzle. The Polish Gentiles outside of the ghetto, but within the general government, had also put aside their many differences and come together, and they had access to the remnants of the Polish army. So the ZOB, when learning of them, sent out feelers and were promised what they had been promised so many times before, weapons. But the home army kept their word, kind of. Word was sent to the ZOB during the second week of December 1942 that a delivery was ready for them. But when they opened the boxes in the basement of an abandoned home, all that was inside were ten handguns, of which four didn't work. Zuckerman, who had experienced so much pain, loss, and disappointment, should have steeled himself for this letdown, but instead had allowed his hopes to rise. So, in his anger, mixed with tears, with the humiliation of being lied to once again, finally realized where his guns would come from, and he raged at himself for not thinking of it earlier. The only ones who had what he needed, guns, grenades, and explosives, were the Germans, and that's from whom he would get what his would-be soldiers needed. Not willing to wait, Zuckerman planned for the raid to take place in the one town the Germans would never imagine. Krakow, in southern Poland, just above the border with Slovakia, was the city where Hans Frank, the hand-appointed leader of the general government, chose to make his capital. And as the Germans had had no real trouble there once the armistice was negotiated back in October of 1939, most German officials didn't bother with security. In fact, those same officers were out most nights at clubs like the Espelande and the Bohemian Café, where Oskar Schindler would conduct much business, and attached to their shiny belts hung their sidearms. These were what Zuckerman was after. So, as the Christmas parties got into full swing, members of the ZOB, dressed as German soldiers or important German civilians, made their way into town and waited for the pre-arranged time to lob crudely made grenades into the bars and other establishments. With these diversions, another larger group would make for the local armory. The agreed two moment came, and suddenly, explosions could be heard shaking the buildings that housed the crowded entertainment facilities. Zuckerman and two others hit the Bohemian Café. They only recovered a few pistols, but seeing the dead Gestapo agents and finally, finally striking back, made the operation worth it. And such was the confusion, the shock the Germans endured. Every rebel managed to escape unchallenged. The plan then called for them to gather again the next day and make their escape. But that's when everything went wrong for Zuckerman. While it's true the Germans' initial response to the attacks was less than inspiring, they soon recovered and called in their spies, two of which belonged to the Krakow ZOB. Soon they had the time and location of the terrorists' meeting place. 
As Isaac met up with his two immediate partners, a young, beautiful linguist and an older man with military experience, who actually planned out the details for this raid, they suddenly heard voices yelling at them to halt in German. Without thinking, they ran for it. But the older man and young lady were soon surrounded. And it was their arrests that allowed Zuckerman to make his escape, but not before being shot in the leg. Having gotten away, he saw German soldiers everywhere now, obviously on high alert. So his only option was to act as if their presence had nothing to do with him, which meant, as his boot filled up with blood flowing from his leg, Zuckerman, as calmly as possible, lit a cigar and strolled down the street albeit with a slight limp. Later that night, he collapsed at a doctor's office. No one had responded to his incessant knocking. But later, two men came by, obviously not Germans, and bandaged up his wound as best they could, but then abandoned him to his fate. A elderly lady then took him in for part of the night, but then kicked him out in the early morning, as her son would soon be coming home and he would, more likely than not, rat out the bleeding young man, if only to protect his mother. Isaac had to face the fact that no one would be helping him. All he could do, if he could do it, was make for the train station and head for the ghetto back in Warsaw. But even that went wrong, as German soldiers were all over the station, obviously looking for those involved with the killings. Before long, Isaac and all the others at the train station were collected. They, it was announced, were going to Germany to work in factories. Technically, Isaac wasn't allowed into the fatherland, but he wasn't about to tell the men with the guns the truth. So, his group started walking towards another train, but Isaac found himself unable to keep up. Yet, no one said anything. So, he continued to slow his pace and was left more and more behind the sullen group, the guards in the front. Once there was a gap in between himself and the others, Isaac simply stopped and watched the man go away. Doubling back, he managed to make it to the station before the train left. Holding himself together took everything he had. Only when he was back inside the ghetto and saw Zavia did he let himself collapse and give up. Zuckerman would be in bed for weeks. His boot had to be cut off, so swollen was his injured leg. At first, no one knew if he would live. It was simply a game of waiting. But others had their own game to play as well. In mid-January of the new year, 1943, as Isaac slowly recovered, the SS began another phase of resettling the remaining Jews within their walled city. There may have only been around 40,000 Jews left in the ghetto. At one point, there were over 400,000. But the SS were now back to finish what they had started. The annihilation of all the Warsaw Jews. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Uh, just a side note, Operation Reinhard became the code name for the German plan to murder the approximately 2 to 3 million Jews residing in the general government's area. Um, although it was started in the autumn of 1941, the operation was later uh, more organized, better organized, and renamed after the SS General Reinhard Heydrich, chief of the Reich Security Main Office. 
He died, and we've covered this in the podcast, but he died in June of 1942 in injuries sustaining during an assassination attempt uh, by Czech partisans when he went there to crack down on them. So to honor him, they decided the na- to name the killing of all the Jews of what they had on their side of Poland after this man. Oh, sorry, one more thing before I let you go. Um, my completely random drawing coffee mug winner is Craig B. from Hudson, Wisconsin. So, Craig, uh, send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. I'll get your address and I'll mail that out to you. Again, thank you for everyone for listening and supporting the show. We should be wrapping this up soon, sadly, because uh, obviously it ends pretty sadly. And uh, then, then I have another exciting thing to, uh, to cover about the. Um, British special forces behind Rommel's lines as he's uh, as he advances in the um, in the desert of North Africa.